Okay. All right. All right. Are you ready? Oh, I'm so ready. Is it the final countdown? It's the final countdown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you guys. Hello, dear listener. I'm Sarah. As you know, I am agnostic, and that is my only defining quality. <laughs> and I am Laura Barclay. I'm a Baptist minister, and that also is my only defining quality. Mm-hmm. And together, we comprise the Bible Bitches. And that is a podcast where we riff on all things biblical, feminist, and pop culture. And today's fun fact is that this is the last episode of season one. We made it. We did. I know. I'm surprised. I can't even believe it. I can't even, honestly, I can't believe that we've been doing this for almost a year. It's crazy. Um, so we're going to be taking a break from now until about mid-March. We're going to try to come back on St. Patrick's Day with an episode about old St. Pat. We're going to probably be drinking some Irish car bombs. Um, but not in a uh, bigoted way. But before we break for the winter, we are going to talk about Mary, mother of Jesus. That's right. Y'all, I love, I, well, full disclosure, I love Mary Magdalene, and I really want to tackle her soon. And I love hate. You want to tackle Mary Magdalene? I think she'd be into it. <laughs> just full body tackler (laughs) he's like you know what i'm in i'm in he's like just uh tackle me a little bit lower (laughs) just kidding that's not what mary magdalene is about i'm totally giving into stereotypes yeah yeah sarah i know (laughs) she's a multi-dimensional person okay she's amazing um mary mother of god I think we can all agree that she's sort of this very like strangely one dimensional, but also very complex character in Christian faith Um, used mostly. I mean, she has her own kind of theology within um, Catholicism. And so what we've done is we've consulted a good friend of mine, Marcy Ovidia, who is a recovering Catholic and super into theology. She's doing her PhD in um, theology right now. And she, she's given us a lot of good information. We've also done some of our own research, but this episode is going to be sort of like on the history of Mary and what is happening in modern Christian ethics. So the reason why, you know, Mary is a really good topic to talk about around the holidays is because she is the mother of Jesus. And as we record this, this is Advent, which is the season of waiting before um, Jesus' birth. So she plays a pretty big role in the old Christmas story, the original version. Yes, I love Advent colors. That like purple and light blue. I love it. Oh yeah. They're the oh, best colors. It, it is it's a really it's really amazing. Like I know everybody's all like red and green, and I'm all like, Advent baby. I'm gonna wear yeah. these Advent colors. I want that dark plum. I want that light blue. <laughs> yes, girl. Um Okay, so we're going to get right to it. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have a genealogy um, that basically lays out the lineage of Jesus of Nazareth, who, spoiler alert, is about to be born of Mary, who is engaged to Joseph. 
this lineage i know right all right so as we were saying the lineage is very remarkable in this matthew passage because it includes four women and we're just looking for a shout out just put just throw some ladies in there at any point <laughs> and uh we're like oh my god it's feminist um so the first woman in this lineage of jesus is tamar of genesis 28 the second one is rahab of joshua 2 um and she was a sex worker who assisted Hebrew spies. Her story is really amazing. We'll have to cover her at some point. Um, then there's Ruth, a Moabite who was an ancestor of David. And we did an episode on her a while back. Um, and also the quote unquote wife of Uriah. But we know that that's Bathsheba who we also did an episode on. So there's, pretty, there's four pretty remarkable women who are in the lineage of Jesus according to this passage in, uh, in Matthew. Yeah. And I mean, I think we all know, even if you don't know anything about Christianity, you know that she was a virgin. She isn't married when she discovers she's pregnant. And we may wonder if all of this genealogy that leads up to Joseph is, le is to legitimize him as Jesus is dead. The women listed in this geneal genealogy all found themselves in socially and sexually precarious circumstances through which they became agents of God. Perhaps they are introducing Mary and also they could be Gentiles, which may indicate Jesus's broader appeal. Um, so we have Jesus... We have Jesus, who becomes son of God through Mary, and son of David through Joseph. Joseph's naming of Jesus incorporates Jesus into the lineage in the real in a real way. It's him. It's him um, making it known or demonstrating that he is Jesus's dad. Right, and we see the two um, the two books of the Bible that deal with Jesus's origin story, if you will, um, that where Mary plays heavily into that um, is Matthew and Luke. And in Matthew, uh, we see a new kinship structure emerge. Um, all over the book of Matthew, brother and sister is said. Um, so God is parent and neighbors are brothers and sisters. Um, when Jesus appears post-resurrection, he tells Mary, not Mary, his mother, uh, but Mary Magdalene to go tell my brothers. Um, that so he and that actually he's talking about his disciples not his actual brothers so it's very interesting that matthew kind of is playing around with what a kins what kinship structures look like mm -hmm. yeah and then jumping over to the gospel of luke in chapters one and two we see that luke and matthew have some traditions in common about infancy and the birth of jesus for example both have joseph and mary as the parents both agree that it happened when they are legally engaged but not married. Both agree Joseph is of Davidic descent, that conception did not happen through intercourse of any kind. It was an angelic directive um, to both of them, right? Yeah, the angel Gabriel appears saying, yeah, yeah. hey, you're preggers. <laughs> Sucker. Both narratives relate to the reign of Herod the Great in, and in both the birth happens in Bethlehem and Jesus is then raised in Nazareth. They go back home. But they also diverge. Uh, Matthew's genealogy goes back to Abraham. Luke's genealogy goes even further all the way back to Adam, who in the 
the Bible is the first man. Uh, Luke's annunciation uh, to Mary is very different. We have this whole like song of Mary um, called the Magnificat that we're going to go into a little bit uh, in a minute. And then uh, Matthew puts uh, a little bit more emphasis uh, also on Joseph. There's no, uh, there's no star kind of the, you know, the, what is it? The star in the East, no flight uh, away, no running away. Um, and slaughter of the infants by Herod and Luke. That doesn't really happen. There's no census that's taking place, no manger narrative, no shepherds, and no uh, appearance of the infancy infancy of John the Baptist, who is kind of his cousin, and uh, and that's not taking place in Matthew. That is, that's all in Luke, that where you're going to find that. We also know that Mary, his mother, um, hasn't had sex via her quote, I do not know a man. <laughs> okay, but for real. Do you remember that news story that everybody like swore up and down was fake, but then like Snopes was like, no, legit, this, this really happened, where um, a girl who, how did they describe it? It was like, she didn't have a, a, a vaginal opening and she still got pregnant because she had just been like fooling around with her boyfriend and he came like on her stomach and then she got stabbed. And, oh. it, and it, do you remember that? Yes. She literally got pregnant through getting stabbed. Crazy bullshit. That is life, insane. Yeah. Life finds a way y'all. Life does find a way. If there is one thing I've learned from Jurassic Park, (laughs) (laughs) that is is just some (laughs) bullshit. Can you imagine being like so, so cavalier? Because there's there's literally no possible way, and then this bizarre, Mm -hmm. like fluke accident. That's horrifying. I'd be so pissed. Anyway. (laughs) Sarah's on the record. She's pissed. <laughs> I'd be like, y'all, I can't even. I just, had to, I just had to do a little drink refill on that. Yeah, that's smart. That's yeah, smart. I couldn't even. I just couldn't <laughs> even drink <here. laughs> Okay. So, sorry. Back, back to the story of Mary. So, yeah. So, like, while they do diverge in some important ways... Uh, the overarching narrative or like the vibe that they're both giving off is that there's this sense of disbelief and wonder. The improbability has gone way up. Nothing like this has ever happened before. It's totally unprecedented. Gabriel, the angel announcing the pregnancy adds to the mystery, but, but like what's really incredible is Mary's song of the Magnificat, which recounts a social reversal of wealth and poverty. It's fascinating. And they use this a lot in later theology, which we'll get to, especially like in liberation theology and then even in Catholicism. But we'll talk about that. Laura, let's talk about the Magnificat. Yeah, let's do. Let's indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me all about it. Right. Um, So here's the Magnificat. The angel says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be most great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him, give to him the throne of the ancestor David. Um, she's kind of expressing disbelief because she's a virgin, and he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and la 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 la, right? Um, so then she starts talking this over with her cousin Elizabeth, and there as they're talking, Mary says, "My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He has looked with favor on the lowliness of His servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed." For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And this is where we really get kind of towards liberation theology. We see kind of a, a role reversal here. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promises he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. So we kind of see this role reversal of the lowly and the hungry getting lifted up and the rich and powerful being brought down and sent away. Um, so it's this really interesting thing where, you know, you have this woman and it's a pregnancy narrative, but she kind of turns this into a very revelatory sort of social reversal statement. It's very interesting. And that all takes place in Luke chapter one. And so we have these alternate stories in Matthew and Luke, but together um, there is some sense of movement with Jesus. And we know that Mary is there at Jesus' death because in John, it is recounted that Jesus says, woman, behold your son. Then Jesus says to the disciple, one of his disciples, behold your mother. Um, from that hour, um, the disciple took her to his own home, probably referring to John, um, the disciple John. Uh, and there are divergent traditions on what happened after Jesus's death to Mary, that she either died in Jerusalem or traveled with John and died outside of Ephesus in Turkey. I was actually lucky enough to travel to Ephesus a few years back and see the stone house of Mary that dates back to the first century and actually drink from a well there. It was really incredible. I mean, you know, it's, it's this kind of giant pilgrimage site. It's a very small, modest house. Um, and there is a room of it that dates back to that first century. And then there's been, there's a little bit of the house that's built on from there. And then there's a well near there where people kind of want to drink or like take the water and bless themselves with it. Um, so it's this sort of beautiful pilgrimage site. That's awesome. Like what, what was that even like? How did that even feel? It felt amazing. Like once I walked in the room where it was the kind of the original room where they said that she ended up, it felt incredible. Like, just goosebumps, just absolute goosebumps of this could have been where she was. It could have been where she died, um, where she, you know, just thinking about everything she would have lived through mm -hmm. and what she would have seen in her lifetime alone, even just as a historical figure is, in, is incredible. Um, but, you know, add on top of that, the sense of religious devotion of this woman played such a huge role, a critical role in this religion she, it's just amazing to, to stand in this spot and be like, this one spot can connect so many people. It's really brilliant. Um, and, you know, because she plays not only just a, like a huge role in Christianity, but also in Islam as well. Mm -hmm. so it's it's yeah. a really amazing thing. Um, so my money is on that she ended up in Ephesus based on my goosebumps and my gut, which is 100% scientific. <laughs> 
it is scientific. And that's like so cool. I, you know, I've, I've, you know, I mean, we've, we've traveled um, together and, and it's so crazy and weird. I can't really wrap my head around it no matter where I go. Like, it's just so crazy to me. Like, how far back history goes like we hear these stories and i can't i just can't quite bridge that divide like the intervening like the gap of time and how much has happened it's just crazy crazy yeah yeah i I took a tour in uh, athens once and they were like uh yeah this is where socrates would have been killed and i was like what no my brain can't even uh register that Mm -mm. yeah no yeah like it's just (laughs) Like, yeah, I I can't, you just can't even whenever, you know, it's, it's incredible because it's just like that, you know, these amazing sort of, uh, events that happen in history that are so, uh, critical and connect so many people. It's so just such a privilege to, to see that, to be able to see some of the places. Yeah. It's, it's mind boggling. Mm -hmm. Anyways. Back to this, back to the topic at hand. Mm-hmm. So, the early church formed in the wake of Jesus's death, and since then, views on Mary, mother of Jesus, have formed and changed in both the Catholic and the Protestant Church. Like it's really this Mariology idea, which is you know the sort of like lifting up to a godhood status. Mary, right, has has really evolved and changed and morphed into something of its own of its own self. Um, there are four Catholic dogmas of Mary. One is the perpetual virginity, and this is disagreed on widely until the fourth century. Theologians Origen and Tertullian didn't believe it, whereas Irenaeus and Jerome did. This is a point of contention today between Catholics and non-Catholics that has led to a certain degree of skepticism on both sides of the Mary coin. So secondly, there's the mother of God uh, dogma, which which came about in the Council of Ephesus in AD 431, which decreed that Mary is the Theotokos because her son Jesus is both God and man, one divine person with two natures, divine and human, intimately and hypostatically, hypostatically, hypostatically united. Um, Third is the Immaculate Conception, which I think we're all pretty familiar with. It became dogma in 1854 when Pope Pius IV, with support of the overwhelming majority of Roman Catholic bishops, wrote the papal bull Infallibus Deus, which is Latin for ineffable God, which defined ex cathedra from chair of Peter, the dogma of immaculate conception. And then fourth is assumption, which is, you know, the idea that Mary ascended into heaven became dogma in the Catholic church in 1950 and the apostolic constitution, something, something deus magnific munificentismus. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Written by Pope Pius the seventh. So these are the four. There's the, um, I think recap. that's Pope Pius the twelfth. Is that the twelfth? Is X is X a twelve? Ten, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Is it then? Then um, Immaculate Conception that became dogma in 1854 with Pope Pius. That would have been Pope Pius the ninth. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. That's Not right. the fourth. 
Anyway, so to recap, we've got perpetual virginity, mother of God, immaculate conception, and assumption. Nice recap. That's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, thanks for hanging in there with us listeners. I know it's a lot. Marian devotions or prayers to Mary um, that are widely known, such as Hail Mary. So, you know, uh, it, basically, if you're not Catholic and you are uh, watching a movie, especially one that involves exorcism, you might notice that there is a, is a prayer that's said pretty often, uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, praise for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. That is um, something that is encouraged by the Catholic Church and the popes, but it's not considered worship. These, these sort of devotions, or because she's kind of seen as an, an intercessor, uh, which means uh, Catholic see Mary as subordinate to Christ, but still above all others. In 787, the Second Council of Nicaea affirmed a three-level hierarchy of Latria, Hyperdulia, and Dulia that applies to God, Virgin Mary, and then to the other saints. So you've got God at the top, right, the, the Trinity, so God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, and then you've got the Virgin Mary who gave birth to Jesus right below the Trinity, and then you've got all the other saints below her. So she's kind of second in command. So is La- Latria, Latria is the Trinity, and then Hyperdulia is Mary, and then Dulia is everybody else? Yeah, I think so. Okay, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so there's been a lot of historical debate about Mariology, about who Mary is in relation to God and in relation to Jesus and in relation to everybody else, right? Because she's almost like what Laura was saying. She's like a godhood, but not, right? And so, um, and so there have been lots of ways that people try to grapple with this, and we're going to get into some of those different cross-cultural things, but they're also like theologically, you know, there's the proposal of the quadrinity, which would put her in the Trinity with Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. Um, That didn't really seem to take off, but that's one possibility. And then it's crazy. Like it's, she's so interesting because all of these different cultures have kind of taken on their own cult of Mary. And I mean, like that's what they call it sort of across the board is the cult of Mary. Um, and Laura's gonna, Laura, like, can you talk about some of those different iterations of what Mary means to these different cultures? Yeah, um, I think that she's sort of depicted in different ways across the globe, right? And so I'll just give uh, one example. In Mexico, uh, she and her role as the Virgin of Guadalupe has appeared more kind of in the syncretistic role of uh, just aesthetically looks a little bit more like an Aztec princess over and against the kind of European robes you might see her in. Um, yeah, they almost kind of look like these sort of like Roman robes, right? Um, that uh, white Western Christians might be used to seeing like European sort of Roman robes, but also in many areas, like in many areas around the globe, she could be seen in multiple different kinds of symbols that she's, maybe a miracle worker or she looks, she kind of represents liberation because she, because of this magnificent, right? This role reversal that she talks about. Um, she's a symbol for motherhood. She's a symbol for women's energy. 
um, there's a sense of also mysticism around her because there's this conversation that she has between her and Gabriel and the sense of some sort of closer relationship with the divine than anyone else. So she is, there's a lot of blanks I feel like you can fill in with Mary and that, that helps her to be very um, syncretistic or able to be meshed in with local uh, diverse cultures and those cultures can kind of make her their own. If that Right. So yeah. So like Lara saying, there are all these different sort of possibilities. You know, she's a very malleable character, right? But she's only malleable to an extent. And so what's interesting is, is kind of how women have used her um, as a, as a symbol for, I guess, kind of what they need or how they are, internalizing their own femininity so like i want and like i want to get to the feminist piece of it so there are two there are two main there are two main things there's there's sort of the more modern feminist critique where they try to like people like rosemary radford ruthers tries to like tease out some of the good that her her as a symbol has done right Mm -hmm. she is the only like lady god almost almost backslash is godhood right she shows herself as the kind she shows herself as the kind of um persona that is championed in the beatitudes right she is this like perfect uh, perfect being in christianity and, and so there's like some good in that insofar as like it gives women a voice, like she has a voice in the Bible. She may not have a, she may not have like a long piece of voice, but she at least has the Magnificat, which is more than most women get in the Bible. She says some words. Which is- <laughs> she, yeah, really, she says some words and she right, says more right. than just like a sentence or two. She says like, yeah. she has her whole chapter, which is. Yeah, she has. I mean, I think she has literally, like, even though she doesn't say a whole lot in the, you know, in terms, in comparison to Jesus, you know, arguably, I mean, not arguably, I think the most important figure of the New Testament, I think she kind of pits herself as the second most valuable figure of the New Testament with that statement. It almost prefigures him in a way, right? Like, it's almost like she introduces the gospel that he's going to preach by saying everything, yeah. everything's turned on its head. And so, yeah, I mean, she's very important. And yes, and she is, I want to say, like she's, I feel like she's the only woman in the Bible who doesn't use her sexual wiles, who isn't in contention with other women, who isn't like, you know, like when we talked about Ruth, when we talked about Bathsheba, there's a conversation about like using the power that you have to get what you need to, to survive. And mm-hmm. she didn't have to do that. She was literally like called upon. She was bestowed mm-hmm. upon. I would argue that Mary Magdalene is the same, but unfortunately church tradition has like, yeah, kind of uh, equated her as a, you know, kind of been like, well, she was a, pro- a recovering prostitute, even though that's not really true, but right. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And like, yeah. I personally like Mary Magdalene more as a character. I think she's, super awesome but in in this context like she she really is like the quote-unquote like christian perfect woman she is totally unsullied 
She, mm-hmm. there's no underpinnings. There are no questions. She is this virgin. She was bestowed upon this gift by God, right? And, and so like, there's that really like positive element to it. But at the same time, there's also this, like the other side of the coin where she is a very problematic figure because she is a, like an unattainable ideal. We can never live up to her. B, um, it creates a lot of like weird, weird tensions for being that kind of like good Christian girl and also never being able, I mean, just like the first thing that I was saying, like you could never be that because at some point you have to have sex to be the perfect woman that she was. It's right. an oxymoron. Um, right. And so, yeah, so it's basically just like we are taking Mary and trying to internalize her and understand femininity in this context. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a lot to unpack. It is. And it's so like, again, like she is this like, like she you can see her as this like very one-dimensional character but it's really complex when you look at it in culture in history mm-hmm. it's very true and even psychologically mary has been examined as a symbol from the likes of sigmund freud who used the title of a poem by goethe in his 1911 paper great is diana of the effusions and also carl jung um one of his famous contemporaries who thought of the Virgin Mary as a spiritual uh, and more loving goddess version of Eros or love. She's also been compared to the Buddhist goddess Tara or the humble and loving figure presented by the East Asian goddess Kuan Yin. I guess there's a whole lot of fodder there for how she's viewed psychologically uh, in terms of the importance of her as a symbol across culture and also who her comparative figures might be across religions yeah and like even um the psycholinguistic theorist um Irigaray, lucy Irigaray, mm-hmm. um she talks about she talks about uh mary and the feminine she says um that mary represents the missing feminine dimension of the incarnation um, Irgaray argues that the fertile, corporeal, and maternal aspects of Christian of the Christian story have been neglected in favor of a life-denying religion based on the patriarchal and sacrificial relationship between God, between a father God and His crucified Son. Like, it's saying essentially that if she had been brought more into the into the Godhood um, and been more revered, then we could have had a more like sort of sympathetic, less of a patriarchal, less of a sacrificial relationship, more of an egalitarian kind yeah, of. Yeah, more of a well-rounded religion. It sounds yeah, like. yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, when Protestant Reformation occurred, veneration of Mary was thrown out. This is still tr- true in many of the Protestant denominations who kind of see it as unnecessary. Um, now, this is less true in more current theologies like liberation theology, which champions Mary because of her uh, as a symbol of like the poor. Well, yeah, I think she would. I, I think I would say that there are Protestant churches who would reclaim her and say she's right. this amazing symbol uh, and that, and yeah, in, in the vein of liberation theology, which you know, kind of came out of, um, if you're talking about Latin American theology, liberation theology, that really came out of the Catholic church. But then uh, if we're talking about, you know, 
African-American liberation theology that really did come out of the Protestant church. And there is some overlap there in terms of the seeing the endpoint as, as liberation for uh, oppressed persons whose rights have been taken away by colonialism, but mm-hmm. by, by the, the evils of colonialism. So I, I don't want to uh, mesh those two things together because everybody should study Latin American liberation theology and African American liberation theology. I think studying both of those have, have really impacted my theology for the better. Um, and, and just a lot of amazing voices there that, that have really amazing points. But yeah, I think I, I have seen really great ways that Mary has been reclaimed in that regard. That has thankfully bled over into more progressive Protestant circles of which I'm in, um, who would take the Magnificat and say, look, there is, you know, she's more than just someone who gave birth to Jesus. She, she is a true figure in her own right of, of liberation who proclaimed that God would turn the tables and would bring about a sense of uh, justice. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that is a way in which she's been maybe viewed differently in more recent times, which is maybe a way of, well, of, of taking, taking more seriously her actual words versus just her as a mom. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as I touched on before, like feminist, theology is struggling to reclaim her too where we want to or like i would say many feminist theologians want to but there's there is that tension of like how do we do it without ignoring all of the misogynistic and patriarchal overtones that that have so influenced understanding of her right i would just tack on to that i think i think that's a really good point of it's hard. I think that's really hard work for feminist theologians to do to unpack and untangle a lot of uh, really harmful centuries of traditions that have hurt women um, quite frankly, and kind of said, Hey, your only worth is through childbearing or whatever way that they would twist that narrative. So whenever I um, graduated from undergrad, I did a, project talking about kind of reclaiming a woman's place in the church. Uh, I think that's actually what I called it. And I talked about how early on women were, uh, you know, priests and deacons in the church. And I talked about some of these things that had been, from my viewpoint, bastardized by the, by, you know, by the second century in the church, they men had kind of taken over and pushed women out. And Something that I remember reading that I put in that paper was talking about how Mary, I, I had posited, there were some sources I found, and I, I can't, I, this is off the top of my head, but wondering how Mary was used as a way for men to get very close to God without feeling like, uh, in, a, in a very heterosexist way, that they, it's like coming too close to a male energy like male uh-huh. to male, that it's almost like, oh, well, it's okay because she's a mom and I can kind of approach her as a mother sort of figure. Um, and so, so it allowed priests to kind of venerate Mary as a, as a way of approaching her through God so that they didn't have to get too close to masculinity to masculinity because of heterosexism, right? Yeah. 
so that was a really interesting thing that I found of uh, queer reexamination of church history and, and looking at Mary through that lens. I thought that was a really interesting thing. But I, I yeah. as I as I talked about how the history of the Catholic Church, and I and I'm the reason I'm bagging on the Catholic Church just for those who don't know is that that was really the only game in town for like over a millennia before yeah. <laughs> Protestants split. And the the person who was one of my the the honors advisor read that and hated it because he was a conservative Catholic mm. and he tried not to pass me because of it. So there was a, a real dilemma between my atheist feminist advisor who was my advisor and, and this guy who was a very conservative Catholic and ultimately I was passed, but he said to me before I went to divinity school, you know, I don't know if they know what they're getting when they get you. Ooh. And I said, Oh, they know what they're getting, and I got a full scholarship. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, so long, suck down. So long, suck down. <laughs> so it's it's just very interesting how something that I said really hit home and, and rubbed him the wrong way. Yeah. I just thought that was fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that there it's it's hard to reclaim some of the stuff. It's, it's difficult. Yeah. So... I know, I know we need, we've kind of go, gone over time. I would really like for us to dive in to Mariology in terms and like in terms of purity culture, because that's a huge, I mean, I want to talk about purity culture period, but Mary and like the Protestant interpretation of Mary has a lot to do with purity culture. And I would love for us to discuss that. Um, hopefully next time we can. Uh, but for now, I think we kind of need to wrap it up. Yeah, it's there's there's so much there. I think that's a really good point. At some point in the future, I think doing a, another deep dive on purity culture and Mary and how the how the church has used some of this stuff in really terrible ways. I think, you know, we can all agree that I say I say we. I mean, I think I think uh Christians who have their eyes wide open and are should be well Willing to accept critiques of this in order that we are not oppressing people that Jesus would not have wanted to be oppressed, Jesus and Mary. And so we really need to take critiques from both inside and outside of the church very seriously whenever it comes to this. Yeah. I mean, she's just such a fascinating complex and so like culturally specific. And that's part of why she's so fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, sorry, I'm getting off on. No, I, I kind of, if it's okay, I wanted to give Mary the last official word because I feel like she has not been given the last official word so many times. Um, I wanted to give her the last word on this last bit of her Magnificat as just a, I feel like we all need this. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away. I just like that. I like it. Get it, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> and we will be back. Uh, this is the last episode of season one. And we are so thankful for our listeners and Patreon supporters. And we will be back on St. Patty's Day this coming March of 2019 with a whole new season. And if you are wanting to hear some requests from us, 
Uh, man, I just cannot, I got an itch that only the Bible bitches can scratch. <laughs> With specific relation to topics of the Bible. <laughs> Please let us know. <laughs> or, you know, Christ- Christianity. Yeah. This or religion in general. Like, just yeah. as long as it's, you know. Yeah. On the up and up. <laughs> on the up and up. Huh? On the up and up. It's just like yeah. something on the up and up. <laughs> if you're like, hey, what do you guys think about what's going on with that like 69 the rapper we're gonna be like we don't care he's insane don't care do not not care care. hard pass Um, (laughs) (laughs) go on with your bad self hey do we have any listener mail um we probably do but i'm gonna be honest it's nearing the end of the year and i'm a little bit overwhelmed with stuff and stuff and things and things and stuff so uh i did not check it I, I have been responding to people. I'm pretty responsive to people on Twitter uh, on our account. So if you want to at me uh, and, and Sarah at Bible Bitches, then I will, I will talk to you. Uh, and then you can also find us on our Facebook page, uh, Bible Bitches, uh, the fan page on uh, Facebook. And uh, you can what, listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can also get our stuff on engagedgaze.com, which is our host website, and we love them. Um, that is engaged gaze with a Z, uh, as in you're looking at something.com. Um, and we want to give some special shout outs to our music. Can you tell us about the music and the art, Sarah? Yeah. Um, Miss Eves, we love you. She is letting us use her song TNT for our intro and outro music. Um, and of course, Aaron at Aaron Doodles on Twitter, who does our artwork and we love him and we're so happy that he has designed these things for us and that he's helped us with swag and everything. Like he's been great. Um, we thank you yeah, guys so much. Some of his swag actually that he designed, uh, went out to our, uh, top tier, uh, Patreon supporters for the holiday presents. Yeah. Those packages went out this week, um, to our $20 supporters. So you get swag when you support us, y'all. Thank you guys. We love you. Have a good one. Happy holidays. Bye.